Accent of Woman acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. Please be aware today's show contains discussions about sexual violence that might be upsetting to some of our listeners. If this type of content is a trigger for you, please skip this episode. For support services, call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. You can also contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800-737-732. That's 1800-737-732. Welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse communities. I'm your host, Ayan Shirwa. International Women's Day is just around the corner, and to mark this important date, we hear from past and present campaigners fighting for gender equality. We begin the show with Natasha and Akansha from the anti street harassment campaign, It's Not a Compliment. Stick around because in the second half of the show, we'll hear a presentation from historian Dr. Victoria Grieve Williams about the remarkable life of Bobby Sykes. We hope you enjoyed today's program.、Um, I'm Natasha. I am the community liaison for It's Not a Compliment, and I joined in 2019 while I was、uh, completing the Community Change Fellowship、uh, organized by Democracy in Color. Uh, my name is Akanksha. I'm the campaign director at It's Not a Compliment.、Um, and I started it with my co founder, Annalise, in November. And、um, for the last eight years, I've been juggling internships, jobs, and full time degrees. So this is actually my moment of rest and relaxation.、Hmm. Um, me and Annalise founded it because. When you look around, you see everyone rushing to do things for climate change, for human rights, but we don't focus so much on the everyday. And how do you change the world when you don't change your everyday habits? And street harassment is something that affects so many people around the world. And when I, and I say people, because it's not just women, it's also like women and girls, not just women and girls, but also members of the LGBTQIA community, QIA plus community. Uh, people with disabilities and neurodiversity, and also people of color. And so that's why we wanted to tackle something that focuses on the everyday, something that we've all been through、mm-hmm. and has affected the way we interact in a public space.、Um, and yeah.、Um, it can be a variety of things. I guess the most common would be just unsolicited comments,、uh, things that make people feel uncomfortable or unsafe. In a public space. Yeah, so it could be catcalling, whistling, leering, homophobic slurs, sexual advances,、um, just basically any form of unwanted behavior. I think because it's been trivialized for so long that it's become a normal part, or like you said, a rite of passage. So there are people that I've spoken to, and then they said that the days they're not harassed on the streets, they think something's wrong with them. No, it just sticks your mobility, you know? Like, you, if you know there's going to be this unwanted creep at the end of that street that you take every day to go to the bus stop, you would not want to do that. And then you'd have to change the way you interact in the public, in the same public space as well. 
So you would take the longer route if you had to. Or you would have, um, you know, you'd have the keys between your knuckles because you're in that constant state of fear. And it also affects the way you even dress. So if someone is used to dressing a certain way, but if they've had a really bad case or even just any case of street harassment, Mm -hmm. it's a possibility that it'll affect their mental health. I recently just moved into a new place and my housemate and I already have a system. We are always location sharing and we have to call each other if we're going to be late or um, if we're en route and then we can pick each other up from the front of the complex. And that's something we decided even before we chose the place that we were going to live in. Mm. So we knew that it was going to be a factor. And um, I think a lot of the things do come down to now, like do a self-defense class, buy yourself some pepper spray or, you know, Mm. some kind of equipment to keep yourself safe. Obviously, we're discussing harassment, but that's often a precursor to more violent behavior if you're normalizing the degradation of a group of people, it also normalizes an exacerbation of that earlier, perhaps more trivialized behavior. Mm. Um, It kind of implies that that's an acceptable thing to do, that it's acceptable to treat another person in that way. Women were quiet for all of those decades because they didn't think people would believe them because it was looked at as like, again, also a rite of passage, you know, like being groped here, being, you know, slapped on the ass over there. Like it's, you know, like it's it's normal, but people have started speaking up about it. The survey is essentially just an anonymous survey where you can submit your experiences of street harassment, um, anything that you found uncomfortable, um, that affected you. And essentially, we'll take those stories and we'll share them on our social media. We may potentially put artwork to them. And the goal is to, I suppose, raise awareness of what people are experiencing every day. For someone who isn't harassed, they won't know or notice it. The reason we started with sharing stories, or it's one of the most important things besides our focus on inclusivity, is that stories are a way for us to relate to other human beings. You know, that's how we forge connections with other people. We have a number of events lined up for International Anti-Street Harassment Week. So it's essentially this whole week of events that takes place around the world, Um, like more than 80, 90 countries involved, um, where there's individuals, there's, there's groups of people, there's NGOs, that organize events in their respective countries to raise awareness about street harassment. So, and this, they've been doing this for nine years, so this will be the 10th year, but this will also be our first year. Uh, organizing a chalk back, which is essentially where we'll be inviting members of the public onto um, to a public space and ask, like handing out chalk and asking them to chalk out their experiences of street harassment. Mm. Um, and then... At the end, on the, on the last day of that week, we're hoping to um, exhibit all the artworks created by our artists so far, because um, every one of them has very generously agreed to donate their work um, to raise money, not for us, but for the organizations like Wire mm. and Fair Agenda that we're partnering, we're collaborating with. Um, so it'll be it'll be going to them. They can reach us on. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All of our handles are It's Not a Compliment. Or they can just go to our website. It's www.itsnotacompliment.com. 
on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accents of Women. I recently went to the event Activism at the Margins, a three-day conference that challenged the way we look at activism. Activism can take many shapes, whether it's writing letters to your local politician, boycotting unethical businesses, or blockading a conference. Agitating for social change requires all approaches. One of the sessions I sat in on brought my attention to an important figure in Australia's black rights movement. In this segment, Dr. Victoria Greve-Williams shares the incredible life of activist and poet Bobby Sykes. Roberta Sykes, also known as Bobby, so she was, she was born Roberta Barclay Patterson and she married an Englishman by the name of Sykes and so that's how she got that name. Uh, she was a very prominent activist in the 1970s in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander struggle in Australia. She was born in Townsville, North Queensland and she first started to go to Opal meetings in that town One People of Australia League, which was one of the Aboriginal organisations that were working towards citizenship. And she um, made a friendship with um, Margaret and Henry Reynolds, who were working at James Cook University. I'm not sure Henry was. Margaret was, definitely. And they were very politically active on the left, I think, of the Labor Party. And... um, She grew from that very low base of an Australian country town in North Queensland to become one of the most prominent activists at the tent embassy. Roberta was the black woman who faced the media. I remember, as quite a small child, seeing Roberta on television. Uh, There was a program on ABC TV called Monday Conference... And she went on there, I think, with Paul Coe and Gary Williams. Um, She was very strident. She was very demanding. She was just as self-assured and uh, of her own position as an activist as people like uh, Gary Foley, Paul Coe and so on. Um, And all of those activists who were uh, with her at those time, at that time, are extraordinarily fond of her. Um, there was another Aboriginal woman who came out to the press and so on. That was Cheryl Buchanan in Queensland. That's what I can discover. I'm still asking questions about this, but um, there's no doubt that Roberta was the leading uh, female voice in activism in Australia. She was very prominent uh, in that struggle Uh, and she also became representative of Aboriginal people in their struggle. So uh, she went to the Pan-African Congress in Jamaica, for example. I'm not sure of the year, Uh, but it was after um, the uh, men went to a Pan-African conference in, in Atlanta And that, at the time, included um, uh, Sol Belair, Bob Mazza, Jack Davis. There were about two more. 
they also went from Atlanta to New York City where they uh, presented a petition to the United Nations about the situation of Aboriginal people in Australia. And the Pan-African Congress, once every four years, Roberta went to the next one in Jamaica. Uh, she took her role as an advocate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's rights very seriously. She was very thorough. People tell me that she was no nonsense. Like, if, if people wanted to work with her, then you had to really deliver the goods. She wasn't interested in you if you didn't turn up or you this or that. She was da right down to business about everything. Um, when she was at the Pan-African Congress in Jamaica, uh, she was approached by Rastafari men who told her about how the Australian cricketers behaved with the Jamaican women, and she took up that case. She was very interested in women's rights. She was very, she was very aware of the, of the hegemonic white male and um, all the damage that could be done. And a part of the reason for that was because Roberta herself, at the age, I think she was only 17, suffered um, a really brutal pack rape. And uh, she, um, she writes about that in her three-volume autobiography with as much detail as she remembers. She's quite fearless. Roberta learnt to speak uh, all of the um, racial oppression that she endured without shame. She was really uh, very admirable in the fact that she was able to talk about that. I want to get on to her mother lately, uh, later, as I said, but it was her mother who made sure those men had their day in court. And this was really at a time in Australia when uh, there was widespread uh, rape of Aboriginal women. I believe there was widespread pack rape of women generally. It was kind of like a cultural phenomenon. And... Um, Roberta was one of the very few people who, who had the perpetrators brought to justice. This is quite a remarkable feat for a young woman of colour in Australia at that time. She was a writer. Roberta had a lot of trouble at school. She had trouble at school because of her colour and because of the way that people assumed that she wouldn't be able to... Um, be what she wanted to be or that whenever there was a problem she was the one who was picked out to blame and you know there's a period in Roberta's life when she had her little sister Della who was born in 1945 and then there was another sister who was born about three years later Roberta had the job of bringing them home from school from the bus every day and they were being stoned by white kids what did Roberta do? She didn't go running to anyone for help. She stoned them back. And what she did was she went out of a night 
and made piles of stones in places where she could find them so that she had her weapons for the next day. (laughs) You get the picture of the kind of person she is, you know, right from the time she's a small child. She's, uh, She's taking on a lot of responsibility herself. Um, she wrote a lot even though she had that difficulty at school and she left school quite young and she she made her own career choice which was to be a nurse and she made arrangements there's some incredible stories in her autobiography she made arrangements to go to a hospital in Charters Tower as a nurse just rung them up made an appointment to go and see the matron. Then she travelled there on her own. She was only, I think she was 15. She travelled there on her own on the train in Queensland that was full of, like, Aboriginal protection uh, mechanisms that, you know, everybody looked at a coloured person travelling on their own, let alone a young woman. And um, she booked herself into a hotel. She'd been earning money already in Townsville. She did bits of work with her mother and so on and so forth. And, um, and the police came to see her in the hotel because somebody had said, well, there's this young woman travelling on her own and staying in the hotel on her own. And the police came and asked her a whole lot of awkward questions. And um, Roberta was left saying to them, but I've got a white mother which was like making it okay for her to have freedom, but it still wasn't, if you know what I'm saying. So I think they actually packed her up and sent her home, as I recall. Um, but she, she defied boundaries. She wasn't going to be told by anybody else what she should or should not be able to do, and that also included her mother. So some mothers here might sympathise with that. <laughs> And um, did I mention uh, she became a very prolific writer? She wrote a a three-volume autobiography. She wrote uh, Mum Shirl's biography. Um, And I think that's the extent of the books she wrote, except for the poetry books. Uh, She wrote quite a few books of poetry. And And a poetry book... I think it's called... Is it called Revolutionary and Other Poems? was the first book to be published. She dedicated that to her mother with this funny kind of cynical backflip dedication. Um, You're smiling. Is that because you know what she said? No, I'm just... Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what she said. (laughs) (laughs) She said, for my mother, who knows a lot about children and very little about blacks... (laughs) just sounds like Roberta to me really she was that like matter of fact and seemingly unmindful of the impact of her words on other people Uh, but when you read her autobiography it seems like her and her mother had quite a tussle over the years her mother very concerned with respectability as you know good girls and women from the 1950s and so on were supposed to be. It was a very repressive time uh, for women as well as for Aboriginal and other coloured people. Um, And 
and Roberta just defiant and wanting to break out and be what she wanted to be, you know. There was kind of a whole world there. And um, she, she was... Um, she described herself as a community educator. She spent a lot of time writing things, like through... She had a job with the New South Wales Department of Health in the Aboriginal Health section, and she spent a lot of time writing things for Aboriginal people to be able to read and things like that. And she visited a lot of Aboriginal communities. She collected data from Aboriginal people. She made sure their voices got into policy and program changes. She was extraordinarily dedicated. That's the way I read her. And... Um, However, when, uh, you know, I've read the three autobiographies twice now, things are underlined and, <laughs> and uh, so on and so forth, and I get my impression from reading her life story as she wrote it is she's not telling an awful lot. She's not telling us a lot. She's very, very careful. As much as she had trouble with her mother who was concerned about respectability... Roberta is too in some ways. Like you can read her three-volume autobiography and the only sexual relationship she had was the unfortunate rape and her husband. But I think there's a whole lot more to that story. And I think the intimate relationships that Roberta had really did a lot to shape her life and her career directions. Do you know what I didn't mention in, in her achievements? For, for a young woman who, of colour in Australia who did not get out of... Uh, who did not get to go to university uh, at all or anything like that, she still had that dream. But guess what Roberta did? She went to Harvard. <laughs> you know, she, she skipped straight over any of the Australian institutions and went to Harvard. And that happened because when she's working with New South Wales Department of Health, a black psychologist visited Australia and people said to her, you must go and hear him speak, he's just fantastic. She went and he spoke to her. And he said in the first meeting he wanted her to come to the US. Why do you think he might have done that? Mm? He knew he knew that she was African. Yeah, he knew that she was African. Whether he knew that African American troops who were in Australia during World War Two left babies behind, I don't know. But this is to get onto the section about secrecy and controversy. Roberta always tried to claim an Aboriginal identity. And that was problematic, and she fell out with several people over that. You know, Pat O'Shane from North Queensland uh, famously published about about it. Please, Roberta, don't try and convince us of this. Um, Naomi Mayers, who ran the Aboriginal Medical Service in Sydney, uh, fell out with Roberta over this. Um, she never fell out with the guys. You know, Paul Coe, 
uh, Gary Foley, others, they always supported her. I don't know if they commented on her identity. But to get on to talking about her vexed relationship with her mother, um, she, uh, she says in her autobiographies that her mother told her several stories about who her father was. And she said, I don't know who my father could be. He might be Papua New Guinean, for all I know. My mother tells me different stories. Um, her mother told a journalist of the Courier Mail newspaper in 1972 or three when Roberta had become prominent. That's when people started to ask who she was because you see the Afro. She was called Australia's answer to Angela Davis. And it's interesting because when African-American friends see the photograph of Angela Davis with that huge Afro, it's kind of a, that was Angela Davis' hairstyle. It wasn't so widespread, but Roberta did it too. Like she was really sort of shaping herself in that way. Um, so she was coming to prominence. The journalist asked her mother who her father was, and he said, as she said, Roberta's father is Robert Barclay, of a master sergeant in the US Marines. And that was that. Um, Roberta, in her autobiography, she says, I don't know why my mother said that. She must have felt really pressured to come up with an answer. And Roberta was more or less saying that her mother lied. Mm. However, from 1943 to 1945, Roberta's mother wrote letters to two different Australian prime ministers asking for the white Australia policy to be, um, what would the word be, suspended to allow the father of her two small children to remain in Australia. And the two small children were Roberta and her younger sister, Della, who had the same father, Robert Barclay. Della was christened, christened Della Barclay Patterson. So, um, well, the people who want to defend the idea of Roberta Sykes being Aboriginal are extraordinarily powerful, so much so that when the Children Born of War project started, there was an article in the Melbourne Age, why oh, I forget the newspaper, how those newspapers are connected, is it the Australian in Sydney, um, or the Sydney Morning Herald, and it's the third paper. We hope you enjoyed that presentation by Dr Victoria Greve-Williams. To learn more about Bobby Sykes, check out her three-volume autobiography, snake dreaming get to know your feminist icons because as bell hooks wrote our struggle is also a struggle of memory against forgetting accents of woman is produced in the studios of 3cr and heard nationally on the community radio network as usual we'd like to thank the community broadcasting association of australia as well as the community broadcasting foundation thanks for tuning in i'm ayan shirwat